Hi, I'm Steph. I'm Kim. And, and this, this is Solved, Unsolved or Spooky. Good afternoon, True Crimers. Hey, everyone. Hope you're all doing really well. Yep, hopefully everyone's great. Uh, we're sorry about the last episode. We were actually at my recording that from my sister's house, so it turned out a lot more echoey than usual. But we are back in our own little studio, <laughs> so hopefully it'll be a better episode. Yeah. And from now on, we'll be releasing our episodes on a Monday instead of a Sunday. So early Monday morning, just to give ourselves that little bit more time because mm. we run out of time every week and it's always the early hours of the morning and we're trying to get our act been together. pretty hectic lately. So. Yeah, our lives have become very hectic. So yeah. just want to give ourselves a little bit more time. So hopefully that doesn't bother anyone too much. Yeah, we want to do the best job we possibly can. We so. do. Certainly do. Yeah. Okay. Got anything else? No, just my case. What are you doing this week? I will put a little trigger warning. As usual. Yeah, because, well, this one is kind of really bad. Um, There's a bit of bad language, which I won't say the actual words, and plenty of just horrible violence and murder. So, you know, if you aren't good with, like, really bad stuff, you and probably it, don't listen to us anymore. <laughs> <laughs> probably. Because that's what we do every week. Yeah. Yeah. But I, again, I'm going to start with a quote, just a little one to uh, <laughs> let everyone know what you're in for. This is becoming your thing, isn't it? It is. I, finally, I keep finding quotes, and I'm like, oh, I'm just going to start with that because it kind of lets everyone know what they're getting into before we get into the full story. Well, before you get into your quote, Kim and I went to the shops, and we don't do that often. And we went to a bookshop and we found oh, we did. all these unreal true crime books and they were half price, so mm. we spent up <laughs> and we'll be going back there. Yep. So, yeah, I'm going to start reading one. Ready? Here we go. Quote away. Once inside the kitchen, I saw a large section of what appeared to be human skin hanging from the top of the architrave of the doorway leading into the lounge room. This piece of skin extended from the top of the doorway right to the floor and appeared to be the entire human skin. Looking through this doorway into the lounge room, I could see a headless and skinless human body. I walked east along the hallway and looked into the entry foyer and saw an extreme amount of blood pooled on the floor. There was also a large amount of blood smeared over the eastern wall of the entry. I walked further east along the hallway and noticed some blood staining leading from the main bedroom. In this bedroom, I noticed more blood staining, however, only moderate amounts. I know who it is. Yeah, well, this is like one of the cases that I kind of first, I don't know, found like just fascinating and <laughs> horrifying <laughs> all at the same time. Ah, oh, And, yeah. Yeah, and what makes it worse is she's a female. She is a female. <laughs> she is. So this is Catherine Knight. And she isn't actually very well known, especially in Australia, even though she's from Australia. 
because they said that they had to make a choice whether people could be able to read this when they were eating breakfast and they decided no. And they they probably did make a good decision. Yeah, I don't think I'd want to read about that eating anything. No. Well, Catherine Knight was born and raised in a dysfunctional family. Huge. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Her mother, Barbara Rowan, had been ma- married to Jack Rowan and lived with him in a small town of Aberdeen in New South Wales, which is kind of just outside Newcastle in the Hunter Valley. Barbara and Jack had four sons before Barbara began an adulterous relationship with Ken Knight. Whoops. A friend and co-worker of her husband. Oh, whoops again. Yeah. The Rowan and Knight families were well known in the conservative rural town, and the affair caused a major scandal. When Barbara's previous marriage broke up, the two older boys, Patrick and Martin, had stayed with their father, Jack Rowan, and the two younger boys, Neville and Barry, went to live with an aunt in Sydney. Ooh. Yeah. So she didn't have any other children? No. She just went, played happy families on her own? Yeah. Jack Rowan died in 1959, and Patrick and Martin went to live with their mother. Catherine Knight was the younger of twins born to Barbara and her de facto partner, Ken, on the 24th of April, 1955, in Pentafield, New South Wales. Ken Knight was an abattoir slaughterman who travelled with his family throughout Queensland and New South Wales, applying for work at Wollongara, Gunnedah, Tenterfield and Moray, and wherever the work was to be found. Ken and Barbara and their six children eventually settled in Aberdeen in 1969, where there was steady work at a local local abattoir. Sorry, I have to interrupt. Hmm? So they had six children of their own as well as she had previous four? No, they're all together living with them. Okay. Ken was an alcoholic who openly used violence and intimidation and would rape her mother up to ten times a day. And this was like half the time in front of the kids. Oh. Yeah, so really terrible home life. Really terrible home life. Yeah. Apart from her twin, the only person that Knight was close to was her uncle Oscar who was a champion horseman, and she was devastated when he committed suicide in 1969 and continues to maintain that his ghost visits her. Barbara, in turn, often told her daughters intimate details of her sex life and how much she hated men and sex. Later, when Knight complained to her mother that one of her partners wanted her to take part in a sex act that she was didn't want to do, Barbara told her to, quote, put up with it and stop complaining. Oh, nice support, yeah. Mum. Yeah. She also claimed she was frequently sexually abused by several members of her family, which continued until she was 11. Okay. And psychiatrists accept her claim, as all her family members confirmed the abuse did happen, although some of the details might be slightly off. Knight and her, twi- her twin sister, Joy, had a reputation in high school for being rough as guts and were feared by teachers and school kids alike. (laughs) The twins apparently fought like cats and dogs in the playground, usually against each other. But if anyone was to, like, mess with the other twin, the other one would jump in to defend her and fight. Most locals remember Knight as a pleasant girl who was nice and friendly when she was in a good mood. 
People in her circle of family and friends also knew to keep away from her when she was in a dark mood. She attended Musselbrook High School, and she became a loner and is remembered by classmates as a bully who stood over small children. Yeah, she's not not the best. She assaulted at least one boy at school with a weapon and was once injured by a teacher who was found to have acted in self-defense. Oh my goodness. By contrast, when not in a rage, she was a model student who often earned awards for good behaviour. Wow. (laughs) She left school at 15, or I've read 16 as well, so around that age, without having learned to read or write and gained employment as a cutter in a clothing factory. Twelve months later, she left to start what she referred to as her dream job, Mm-hmm. Cutting up the offal at the local abattoir from where she was quickly promoted to boning and given her own set of butcher knives. At home, she hung the knives over her bed so that they, quote, would always be handy if I needed them, a habit she continued until her incarceration. We never know when you're going to need a butcher's knife in bed. <laughs> Knight's fascination with knives is known as pickerism a clinical term for someone who is aroused by the notion of cutting, slicing, or stabbing skin. Yeah, a person with picarism fantasizes about using a knife to pierce skin. Catherine took great interest in her job and would often wander over and start to the start of the production line and watch the pigs having their throats cut. Other Other employees found her macabre interest a little strange, but just assumed she was just looking at other areas of the job. It was said that she, once she was promoted up to like being able to do the slaughtering herself and that, yeah, that there's a way where you just quickly do it and they bleed out yeah. and they don't really feel anything. Mm-hmm. But she would like nick arteries so that they would just slowly bleed out and she could just stand there and watch. Oh, yeah, that has so. just sent a creep up me. Yeah. Oh. oh, she's she's not a nice lady. Not at all. Catherine first met her co-worker David. Stanford Kellett, in 1973 and completely dominated him. (laughs) If Kellett got into a fistfight at the hotel, Knight would step in and back him up with her fists. In Aberdeen, she was renowned for combating anyone who upset her. Kellett had previously worked the railway at Coffs Harbour. His best friend was killed in front of him in a shunting accident, and he was later present when a train hit a school bus in Kempsey, killing six children. In 1968, he had helped rescue the injured and remove the bodies. Aww. Yeah. He began drinking heavily and it is said that it stemmed from these incidents. Oh, yeah, that's pretty traumatic. This is more traumatic for him, I suppose. <laughs> he was transferred to Musselbrook after causing several derailments due to falling asleep while shunting. Um. His behaviour deteriorated and he eventually lost the job. But he soon got work at nearby Aberdeen Abattoir, where he became close friends with Knight's brother. Knight married Kellett in 1974 at her request, with the couple arriving at the service on her motorcycle with a very intoxicated Kellett. As soon as they arrived, Knight's mother, Barbara, gave Kellett some advice. <laughs> Quote, The old girl said to me to watch out. You better watch this one or she'll effing kill you. Stir her up the wrong way or do the wrong thing and you're effed. Don't ever think of playing up on her or she'll effing kill you. 
And that's what her mother's t- that was her mother talking. She told me that she's got something loose. She's got a screw loose somewhere. Wow. And that was like literally what she said to them on her like him on the wedding, on day. wedding day. Yeah. Well, he didn't run, he should have ran. I know. Should've got back on that Well, motorbike. On their wedding night, she tried to strangle him. She explained it was because he fell asleep after only having intercourse three times. The marriage was particularly violent, and on occasion, on one occasion, a heavily pregnant knight burned all Kellett's clothing and shoes before hitting him across the back of the head with a frying pan. Gee. Simply because he had arrived late from a darts competition. Wow. <laughs> yep. In fear for his life, he fed, he fled before collapsing in a neighbor's house, and he was later treated for a badly fractured skull. Police wanted to charge her, but Knight was now on her best behaviour and talked Kellett into dropping the charges. Oh, my gosh. Please tell me that he didn't go back to her. <laughs> One morning, he woke to find Catherine sitting astride his chest, a knife in her hand, oh grazing David's throat. Catherine just laughed at him, saying how easy it could be for her to kill him. Yeah, I would have run for him. Yeah, I would have sneaked on out of there. In May 1976, shortly after the birth of their first child, Melissa Ames, Kellett left Catherine for another woman and moved to Queensland, unable to cope with Knight's possessive violent behaviour. The next day, Knight was seen pushing her new baby in a pram down the main street, violently throwing the pram from side to side, just hitting poles and just anything she could find. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. She was admitted to St. Elmo's Hospital in Tamworth, where she was diagnosed with postnatal depression and spent several weeks recovering. After being released, she placed her two-month-old daughter, Melissa, on the railway tracks shortly before the train was due then stole an axe, went into town, and threatened to kill several people. Mm, I don't think that's postnatal depression. There's <laughs> probably a little bit more going on there. Just a little bit. Well, a man known in the district as Old Ted, who was foraging near the railway line, found and rescued Melissa. It is said that this was only minutes before a train passed. Oh, my goodness. Yep. Knight was arrested and again taken to St. Elmo's Hospital, but signed herself out the following day. I don't understand. No, I don't know either. <laughs> Please tell me they did not give that baby back to her. Oh, no, they were straight back to her. Oh, my God. A few days later, Catherine slashed the face of a woman she knew with a butcher's knife while demanding that she take her to David. No. Just drive me to David. Bleeding profusely, the woman only escaped when she pulled into a petrol station. When police responded to a frantic call from the petrol station owner, they arrived to find Catherine holding a little boy at the, by the front of his T-shirt and waving a knife in the air. The officers managed to drag the terrified child away by attacking Catherine with brooms and grabbed her when she dropped the knife and let go. let the boy go. On the recommendation of a local doctor, she was admitted to Morissette Psychiatric Hospital for treatment and detained under supervision, while her baby daughter was placed in the care of her grandparents, Barbara and Ken Knight. Um. I mean, they're not any better. She told the nurses that she intended to kill the mechanic at the service station because he had repaired Kellett's car, which had allowed him to leave, 
and then killed both her husband and his mother when she arrived in Queensland. Oh, very nice. <laughs> yeah. But when police informed Kellett of this incident, he left his girlfriend, and along with his mother, they both moved to Aberdeen to support Catherine. Jeez. Yeah. She was released on the 9th of August, 1976, into the care of her mother-in-law, and along with Kellett, they now moved to Woodridge in Brisbane, where she got a job at the Dinmore Meatworks in nearby Ipswich. On the 6th of March, 1980, they had another daughter, Natasha Marie. Please stop having babies. <laughs> in 1984, Knight left Kellett and moved in, first with her parents in Aberdeen, then to a rented house in nearby Mosselbrook, and returned to work at the abattoir, but she injured her back the following year and went on a disability pension. No longer needing to rent accommodation close to her work, the government gave her a housing commission house in Aberdeen. She met minor David Saunders in 1986, and a few <laughs> and a few months later, he moved in with her and her two daughters. Although he kept his old apartment in Scone, so he could do a runner when he needed to. <laughs> yeah, Knight soon became jealous and didn't like that he had his apartment, and would often throw him out and he would move back to his apartment in Scone, and then she would follow him and beg him to return. Crazy lady. Yeah. It wasn't long before the fights got violent, with Catherine, who was taller than David, attacking him with her fists and boots. And in May 1987, she let him know what would happen to him if he ever played up on her with another woman, by slitting his two-month-old butt's throat from ear to ear with a bony knife before hitting him with a frying pan and bashing him into unconsciousness. You told him she'd do that or she did that? Oh, she did that to to warn him that, oh you know, more would come if he messed up. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's not subtle. Words would have been fine, lady. I, I thought it would be fine to just say, hey, don't cheat on me. Hmm, or else. But not, not Catherine. Hmm. Saunders' friends were so used to listening to tales of his partner's violence that they jokingly took bets on when their next attack would take place. It wasn't unusual for Saunders to turn up to work with cuts and bruises on his face. Whoa. Knight had at one point broken a couple of his ribs and inflicted such deep cuts to his wrists that he needed stitches. In June 1988, she gave birth to their third daughter, Sarah and Saunders put a deposit on a house, which Knight paid off when her workers' compensation came through. Knight decorated the house with animal skins, skulls, horns, rusty animal traps, leather jackets, old boots, machetes, rakes, and pitchforks. No space, including the ceilings, was left uncovered. After an argument where she hit Saunders in the face with an iron, which was on, and left a mark like a burn mark on his face, before stabbing him in the stomach with a pair of scissors. He moved back to Scone, <laughs> and when he later returned home, found she had cut up all his clothing. Man, this chick's psychotic. Yeah. Saunders took long service leave and went into hiding. Knight tried to find him, but no one would tell her where he was. Please stay in hiding. 
Yeah, well, she eventually just gave up because she couldn't find him. No one was telling her. boy, thank goodness. Mm. Several months later, he returned to see his daughter and found that Knight had gone to the police and told them she was afraid of him. They issued her with an AVO or an apprehended violence order. So bizarre. (laughs) Yeah. In 1990, Knight became pregnant by a 43-year-old former abattoir co-worker, John Chillingworth, and gave birth the following year to a boy they named Eric. John Chillingworth was a recovering alcoholic and admits that to hitting her once. It was, <laughs> it was after she had pushed him too far after smacking his glasses off his face and breaking his false teeth in his <clears throat> mouth. The relationship did not last long. Their relationship lasted three years before she left him for a man she had been having an affair with for some time. His name was John Price. Oh, John Price. Yeah. This is where things really escalate. I mean, you would think those things are bad enough. I'm just blown away she can pull all these chaps in. I know. And they all know what she's like. They all know the reputation. John Price, or Pricey as he was known, was the father of three children who was known as a terrific bloke, liked by everyone who knew him, and was described as an average Aussie who worked hard and enjoyed the occasional two he knew. His own marriage had ended in 1988. While his two-year-old daughter had remained with his former wife, the two old children lived with him. Price was aware of Knight's violent reputation but didn't really seem to believe it, and she moved in the ha- into his house in 1995. He was making a lot of money working in the local mines, and apart from the violent arguments at first, said, quote, life was a bunch of roses. In 1998, they had a fight over Price's refusal to marry her, and in retaliation, Knight videotaped items he had stolen from work and uh-huh. yeah, sent the tapes to his boss. These items were out-of-date medical kits he had scavenged from the company's rubbish tip and he was fired from a job that he had held for 17 years. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Like, he just got these things out of the bin. No one was using them. So. Yeah. The same day, he kicked her out, and she returned to her own home, while news of what she had done had spread throughout the town. Knight was feeling extremely upset about Price's seeming lack of commitment to her and his devotion to his children and ex-wife. How dare you? <laughs> mm. The main argument was over Price's house, and he'd put this in his children's name. Oh, and that wasn't good enough for her. No, she wanted it. Yeah. One time in front of Price's friend Trevor, Knight once said, you'll never get me out of this house, I'll do you in first. A few months later, Price restarted the relationship, although he now refused to allow her to move in with him, and the fighting became even more frequent, and most of his friends would no longer have anything to do with him while they remained together. I know, this is such a sad story, this one. In February 2000, a series of assaults on Price culminated with Knight stabbing Price in the chest. Finally fed up, he kicked her out of his house. On the 29th of February, he stopped at the Scone Magistrate's Court on his way to work and took out a restraining order to keep her away from both him and his children. Good. That afternoon, Price told his co-workers that if he did not come to work the next day, 
it would be because Catherine had killed him. And they pleaded with him not to go home, but he told them that he believed she would kill his children if he did not. Price arrived home to find that Knight, although not her herself, had sent the children away for sleepovers at friends' houses. He then spent the evening with his neighbour before going to bed at 11pm. Earlier that day, Knight had bought a new black lingerie and dropped into her sister's house to get a video camera as she had left there several months earlier. She then went to her daughter Natasha's house and recorded a video of herself playing with Natasha's baby. In the video footage, Knight looks at the camera and says, quote, I love all my children. I hope I see you all again. Knight also decided to take her daughter Natasha out to a local Chinese restaurant for dinner, telling her, I want it to be special. After dinner, she asked Natasha if she could leave her two youngest children with her for the night. Even though they had no clean clothes and they were without their school uniforms and other things that they would need the following day. Knight later arrived at Price's house while he was asleep and sat watching TV for a few minutes before having a shower. She then woke Price up and they had sex after which he fell asleep. At 6am the next morning, the neighbours became concerned that Price's car was still in the driveway and when Price did not arrive at work, his employer sent a worker to see what was wrong because he was a nice and reliable guy who always turned up to work. Both the neighbour and the worker tried knocking on Price's bedroom window to wake him but after noticing blood on the front door, alerted police. Police officers made the following report after arriving at the house. Quote, At about 6am on Wednesday, March 1st, a neighbour noticed that the victim's York utility truck was still at his home. This appeared unusual as the victim normally had left for work each day prior to this time. This neighbour became concerned and did the as did the employer of the victim, who was by this time making inquiries as to why the victim had not attended work. Attempts were made by the neighbour and the other friend to wake the victim by knocking on his bedroom window. The neighbour and the friend then went to the front door where they saw a small amount of blood on the wooden exterior. Police were contacted and attended about 8am. The police at the scene forced entry into the house through the rear door. Upon entry, the police located the victim's exterior layer of skin hanging from a hook in the doorway arch into the lounge room. They then located the victim's decapitated remains on the lounge room floor near a small foyer leading to the front door. A further search of the house by police resulted in them locating Catherine Knight, who was snoring loudly in a comatose condition on a double bed at the end of the house. She was removed from the house immediately by police and later conveyed to hospital by ambulance. She had stabbed Price with a butcher's knife while he was sleeping and according to the blood evidence, he woke and tried to turn the light on before attempting to escape, while Knight chased him through the house. He managed to open the front door and get outside by either, by either stumbling back inside or was dragged back into the hallway where we finally died after bleeding out. Later, Knight went to Aberdeen and withdrew $1,000 from Price's ATM account. And Price's autopsy revealed that he had been stabbed at least 37 times in both the front and back of his body with many of the wounds puncturing vital organs. 
Once John was dead, Knight then methodically proceeded to skin the corpse, taking off the entire skin, including the face, ears, scalp and neck. Knight only left a small inch square of skin on the body. The square had the scar from where she had stabbed him previously. The skin was removed so expertly. She then hung the skin from the meat hook on the architrave of the door. Once the skin had been removed, Knight then continued to defile the body by chopping off the skinned head and cooking it in a big pot on the cooktop. According to the forensic pathologist Dr. Timothy Lyons, who performed the autopsy, the whole procedure would have taken about 40 minutes. And I read that it was so precise that they literally could put the skin straight back on the body and stick it up. <laughs> he removed slices from the man's buttock and served them up as steak. Baked potatoes, pumpkin, zucchini, cabbage, yellow squash and gravy in two settings at the dinner table, along with notes beside each plate each having the name of Price's children on it. There was meat out of the back lawn, which was tested and turned out to be more of Price. My goodness. Price's head was found in the pot with the vegetables. The pot was still warm, estimated to be between 40 to 50 degrees Celsius, indicating that the cooking had taken place early in the morning. Knight arranged the body with the left arm draped over an empty 1.25-litre drink bottle, with the legs crossed. This was claimed in court to be an act of defilement, demonstrating Knight's contempt for Price. He also left a handwritten note on top of the photograph of Price. Bloodstained and covered with small piece of flesh, the note read, Time got you back, Jonathan, for rapping, which raping, my daughter, daughter, you too, Beck which is Price's daughter's name, for Ross, for little John, little John is his son, now play with little John stick, John Price. There was no inf- information to back up, like any of the accusations in that note. Yeah. So we don't know what was happening there. Detective Musico, Miss, I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce that, said, quote, I remember walking down the hallway and about at shoulder height, there was all this blood splatter marks on the walls. To me, it's indicative of each attack. He's absolutely fighting for his life. The bloke's just had a bonk in the bed. When he wakes up, then stab, stab, stab. He's getting up. There is arterial spurting on the rope in the bed. And on the doorway, there's a bloodied handprint for a swipe on the western side of the door, near the dressing table, and blood around the light switch. It looks like he tried to turn the lights on, and then, all down the hallway, there's bloody handprints everywhere. And he's almost made it. He's opened the front door, the screen door is shut, there is blood staining trajectory again, licking it out across the front door. He's almost made it, but he wouldn't have survived. He would have been absolutely horrified, terrified probably, terrified more than horrified, trying to get out, and all that time being stabbed. Knight's initial offer to plead guilty to manslaughter was rejected, and she was arraigned on the 2nd of February 2001 on the charge of murdering Price, to which she entered a plea of not guilty. Her trial was initially fixed for the 23rd of July 2001, but was adjourned due to the counsellor's illness and was refixed for the 15th of October 2001. 
When the trial commenced, Justice Barry O'Keefe offered the 60 jury prospect the option of being excused due to the nature of photographic evidence, and five accepted. When the witness list was read out to the prospects, several more also dropped out after which the jury was impaneled. Knight's attorney then spoke to the judge who adjourned to the following day. The next morning, Knight changed her plea to guilty and the jury was dismissed. Mm, Yeah. It was now made public that Justice O'Keefe had been advised to the plea change the day before. He had adjourned the trial and then ordered a psychiatric assessment overnight to determine if Knight understood the consequences of a guilty plea and was fit to make such a plea. Knight's legal team had planned to defend Knight by claiming amnesia and disassociation, a claim supported by most psychiatrists they did consider her sane. No reason has ever been given for the guilty plea, and despite giving it, Knight still refuses to accept responsibility for her actions. At the sentencing hearing, Knight's lawyers requested that Knight be excused to avoid hearing some of the facts, but the application was refused. When Dr. Timothy Lyons took the stand and described the skinning and decapitation, Knight became hysterical and had to be sedated. Knight's brother, Kenneth, told police that five months before the murder, Knight said, I'm going to kill Pricey and I'm going to get away with it. I'll get away with it because I'll I'll make out that I'm mad. On the 8th of November, Justice O'Keefe pointed out that the nature of the crime and Knight's lack of remorse required a severe penalty. He sentenced her to life imprisonment, refused to fix a non-parole period, and ordered that her papers be marked never to be released. Beautiful. This was the first time in Australian history for the sentence to be opposed of an honour woman. 44-year-old Robert Edward Price was arrested, attempting to <laughs> smuggle two shards of glass into the courtroom. According to the Newcastle Herald, he was heard on the steps of the court outside the court saying, I'm going to kill that something that killed my brother. He was fined $800. During the trial of one of Australia's foremost criminal psychologists, Dr. Milton, was asked to discuss his findings after interviewing Knight. Dr. Milton said that Knight suffered from borderline personality disorder, but knew exactly what she was doing on the evening of February 2000. Justice O'Keefe stated, Catherine Mary Knight, you have pled guilty and been convicted of murder of John Charles Price at Aberdeen on or about February 29, 2000. In respect of your crime, I sentence you to imprisonment for life. June 2006, Knight appealed the life sentence, claiming that a penalty of life in jail without the possibility of parole was too severe for the killing. Much too severe for that mega (laughs) killing and skinning. Yeah. Price's brother, Bob, who had attended all the court sessions and had listened to the dreadful details about the end of his brother's life, committed suicide shortly after night sentencing, and Price's children continued to suffer in the aftermath of their father's death. Justice Peter McClellan, Michael Adams and Megan Latham dismissed the appeal in the New South Wales Court of Criminal Appeals in September with Justice McClellan writing in his judgment This was appalling crime, 
almost beyond contemplation in a civilised society. Video footage of the crime scene is locked away for good. They are so bad that it is believed anyone who views the tapes would be forever damaged. The police officers who were at the scene have complained years later of still being affected by the horror they saw. Mm. One officer endured years of therapy to try and wipe the visions from his mind. She is currently being held at the Silverwater Women's Correctional Centre in New South Wales, and apparently she regularly attends church services and sings in the women's prison choir. She is also known as like the Nana in the prison, and has found, obviously found religion, and she paints, and she knits, and she sorts out disputes among prisoners. But the prison officers never take their eyes off her, and she is not allowed near knives anymore. Mm. And that is the end. Well, that was just gross as usual. Yep, that one was a horrendous case. And, yeah, just everything about it. I don't know how she got away with this stuff she was doing for so long and then escalated to murder. I just don't get that now she just gets to kick along in jail, just doing what she wants when she wants and happy days. Yep. I don't know. Oh, well, that's the justice system for you. Mm. While those poor kids now suffer for the rest of their lives. Yep. I read something else about her daughter. She um, was... Went to a bar and apparently Catherine didn't like that, so she just went there, grabbed her by her hair, dragged her out by her hair, and no one even better than that. They're like too afraid to talk to her or say anything because everyone was afraid of her. That's crazy. I think it's just worse when things are perpetrated by women. Mm. Well, they're supposed to be more nurturing and loving and have empathy. Yeah, especially towards your own children. You're not supposed to bash them around or put them on train tracks. No. Hopefully I didn't completely destroy everyone. I know I always just say I'll try and find something lighter, but it never seems to happen. I don't think it works. No. That's no. not light. Maybe next week or the week after. <laughs> Your story's yeah, next week. Yeah, I've got no clue what I'm doing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, hopefully everyone enjoyed that, and I guess we'll see you next week. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. You can follow us at Facebook at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky, on Twitter at Hashtag or Solved, Instagram at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky. You can email us at podcast at Solved, Unsolved or Spooky dot com. And if you want to support the show, go to Podfan and find Solved, Unsolved or Spooky and pick one of the tiers. Thank you. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes.